Super. And if you would mute yourselves, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll welcome your contributions as we go along. Great. Okay. Thank you for being here. Um, once again, I'm excited about what I learned about this Torah portion and its place in the context of the whole Torah that I just, it just sort of pieces keep getting filled in around the edges and it's exciting. Um, and I want to thank Rabbi Ellen for sending me a teaching of Rabbi David Seidenberg that I'll be citing today, who's really brilliant on this subject. So let's say a blessing and I'll launch in and there's no way I'm going to cover everything this hour, but it's, I just really appreciate the opportunity to articulate my, these insights that I'm gleaning from all the teachers I've been reading. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. The Torah portion is called Bahar because the portion begins Bahar Sinai on Mount Sinai. It is chapter 25 of the book Leviticus. And it is only one chapter long. It's a long chapter, but it's just one chapter long, plus a couple of extra verses. And it's part of a unit of these final two portions of the book of Leviticus. The other one's called Bechotai. In a non-leap year, we read them on the same week. But because we're in a Jewish leap year, we split them out. But we are now in the culminating chapters of the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that I'm understanding more and more deeply is, again, the larger structure of the Torah, which is to say, let me put it this way, sort of schematically. If you look at the book of Genesis as a unit, I would say the question that the book of Genesis asks in the beginning is, Am I my brother's keeper? Which is Cain's question, which is then answered at the end of Genesis by Joseph and how he takes that on for his brothers, right? So there's an, there's an arc that seems very strong to me in the book of Genesis. But then when you look at the book of Genesis and Exodus together, there's also, as we've discussed many times over the years, a clear narrative and um, moral kind of arc to that, which is God creates the universe, the earth, the world at the beginning of Genesis and places the humans in it. And then by the end of Exodus, humans create a sanctuary for God so that God can dwell in human midst. And there's a beautiful um, uh, coherence and uh, balance to that narrative. There's also an internal narrative in the book of Exodus itself, where at the beginning of Exodus, the children of Israel do not experience God's presence. All they feel is the oppression of slavery and they cry out. And in the course of the entire book of Exodus, God hears them, liberates them, and then the connection is restored. So there are these narrative arcs within each book 
<clears throat> and then there are narrative arcs that cross the book. And one of the things I was learning today that I knew but became much clearer to me, and I want to really explore this with you, is that um, there is a narrative arc between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Leviticus. That is what I want to look into with you today, among other things. Because the end of Leviticus, which asserts that we are at Mount Sinai, it repeats it three times. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Exodus says, the very beginning of, you know that you're dealing with a literary unit because at the beginning of our portion, chapter 25, verse one, it says, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, this is a very unusual phrase. If you look for it anywhere between Mount Sinai and here, you won't find it. So the fact that it's asserted means that it's, this is what we want you to hear, the writers are saying. Because then the very end of Leviticus, of these three chapters that end Leviticus says, hold on. And these are the commandments that the eternal gave Moses for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. And that word Mount Sinai is the end of the book of Leviticus. So you hear that it's tied all the way to where the, when we hear the 10 commandments in Exodus. But the question is, how is it tied to the beginning? And this is where as I was describing a couple of weeks ago, I'm working to wrap my mind around an agrarian reading of the Bible. Remember, I showed you this book and we discussed it a couple of weeks ago. Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, an agrarian reading of the Bible by Ellen Davis, who is a professor at the um, Witch Theological Seminary, Duke Divinity School, um, a professor of uh, Bible. And so the agrarian perspective, as I understand it, is that we have been, our, that we are here on earth in order to live in harmony with creation. That doesn't mean we're not here to draw the fruits of creation for our sustenance to cultivate creation for our well-being, but we must do it in harmony with the laws of nature, as it were, God's laws. And that if we, in our hubris, think that the earth is only there for our own enjoyment and uh, um, exploitation, we have, we have disconnected ourselves from the very source of our being and our hubris is going to be our destruction. It's pretty clear that that is not theoretical in our day and age, right? And that's why we have to hear this message in every way it can be expressed. And so 
from that perspective, my understanding of the Torah expands exponentially. It really does. Because when God places Adam in the garden, he places Adam, God places Adam there in order to serve it and protect it, to till it, to tend it, to serve it, to protect it. And we humans, as we carry the narrative through the Torah, fail to do that repeatedly because we forget our creatureliness, our connection to everything, our subservience to the creator of all. And we think we are the creators. So this overarching connection is that chapter 25, our portion today and the following portion demand and command us to live in a rhythmic harmony with creation by observing the sabbatical year and by observing which every seventh year we give up ownership of the land and our ownership has always never been ownership but in fact we are leaseholders of gods god owns the land and we are god's people and so God is our landlord, <laughs> Lord, right? And we have to follow God's, obey God's rules, the commandments, so that we might live on God's land. Um, now I'm going to expand on this with you all, but from the agrarian reading of the Torah, our purpose, the purpose of the Torah is not only to train us in the ethics of interpersonal justice, kindness, and compassion, but to train us to live in harmony, sustainable harmony with God's earth, where God placed us. I'm going to come back to this, but now I want to turn to the writings of Rabbi David Seidenberg to kind of flesh this out a little bit. That again, Rabbi Ellen Trebwasser shared with me this morning and who I'm a big fan of. Let me share my screen. There we go. And I'm going to read some of his words as our text. And then I'm going to pause, explicate, and invite, your, as always, your comments, okay? So Rabbi David Seidenberg writes, Shemitah is the culmination and purpose of the Sinai covenant. Shemitah, again, is when we release the land every sixth, seventh year and we release those indebted to us. Now keep in mind, 
that this is an agricultural society. All the wealth is produced by the farmers. And not just the wealth, but the, ba the basic sustenance of the people. And everyone who's anybody pretty much, except for the Levites, who are, are farmers. The Levites manage the, the uh, kind of the, sac the, the, the sacred um, temple and uh, the sacrificial system. And so we, the people all are, have to give them from their produce, but everyone's a farmer. Now you can be a farmer who is in control of your own property. You can be a farmer who has had to, because of debt, give up control of your property and work as a essentially a tenant farmer. You can be a farmer who, because you've lost everything, has to indenture yourself to another owner. Um, and therefore, but you're still a farmer. And then every 49 years in our portion, we learn every seventh year you let the land rest, but every 49 years, the Jubilee is the 50th year when any Israelite who's indentured, any Israelite who's lost their land, all debts are forgiven. And there is a radical rebalancing where people can go back to the land that is their family's inheritance from God and continue to work the land. Um, so treating the land and treating the farmer, the farmer and the land are completely one in this, in this uh, ancient setting. Uh, how you treat one is how you treat the other. If you forget to treat the farmer, uh, uh, as a human being, or forget to treat the land as um, an, an, an entity that needs to be uh, uh, cherished and tended and allowed to rest, uh, either one, um, you break with God's plan. So, so now here's how Leviticus can be thought of as the culmination of Genesis and of the problem of humanity that Genesis lays out. I'm gonna read this. Simply put, Genesis up till Avraham is the story of how everything went wrong in three essential relationships. The relationship between humanity and God, the relationship between humanity and the land, and between humanity and other animals. Sinai, the covenant of Mount Sinai, and Shemitah, these laws of releasing the land every seventh year and of releasing debts. Shemitah, which is the culmination of the Sinai covenant, tells the story of how to fix those relationships. Okay, so let's start. Let's look at those relationships. So the Torah sees humans' relationship to God, to the land, and to all its creatures as broken. That's why Torah may be still, maybe, and I'm being, you know, is still relevant today. The Torah takes a um, realistic and therefore 
in a way, pessimistic view of humanity. We're created in the divine image. We know what our potential is for being great. And yet, by observing the world 3,000 years ago or the world today, we see that it's beset by our greed and venality. And how are we going to solve it? And the Torah can be read as the Israelites' projection of, how the cre of what the creator is doing in order to get us to realize our highest potential, um, our divine nature, uh, when all evidence points to our, our collective inability in any sustaining fashion to be able to do that. And so um, God creates a garden and places the human in it. Eden is represented as a place where people don't work the land and don't need to work the land, a place where they share food equally with all the animals. Leaving Eden, all this changes, beginning a downward spiral for humanity and creation. So I wanna comment on this. In the Garden of Eden, there are no boundaries. There's no domesticity versus wildness. All the animals come before Adam. Adam names them all. They all seem to have some intimate relationship. They all eat from the fruits of the trees in the garden. There's no private property. There's no sweat and toil, right? This is the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's my thesis personally that this is inevitable, that the Torah is describing that as soon as humanity achieves self-awareness, we also start to uh, uh, develop um, self-interest. <laughs> we and so we we get our self-awareness disconnects us from the land. That's the nature of being a conscious human being. And we have to continually then figure out how to train ourselves to remain, to have our consciousness, consciousness remain integrated with the needs of the greater body in which, of which we are a part. And so what the first few chapters of Genesis describe, as Rabbi Seidenberg says, is a downward spiral. And then Noah's flood is the culmination of that degeneration. This this document here, Sylvia. Um, Ellen, would you share the link? Yes, thank you. Uh, Ellen Trebois is gonna share the link to the uh, blog from which I excerpted these words. And then I just didn't wanna, I wanted to condense what he, what he said about but it's a wonderful essay. And if you follow the links, you'll see it leads to all his other writings on, on these subjects. So thanks Rabbi Ellen. So when we look, there it is, thank you. When we look at the introduction to the flood story, it's, it's really, well, first I wanna look at um, uh, the, the exile from the garden. So let me go to, um, I'm gonna share another, another screen. Oh God, I have too much to say today. We'll see how I do.
Um, when God curses, Adam, because you did as your wife said and ate of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. By hard labor shall you eat of it all the days of your life. So I never noticed this before. But God curses the Adama, the ground, because of Adam's behavior. I want to point that out to you. And then what happens subsequently is that over the next generations leading up to Noah, it says over and over that the earth becomes filled, saturated with human violence. So the curse of the earth, the, the earth is absorbing the human violence and, and uh, mistreatment. And so by the time we get to chapter six and the story of Noah, Yodhevabe saw how great was human wickedness, ba'aretz, on the earth. This word aretz becomes very important. How every plan devised by the human minds seemed to be just evil all the time. And God regretted me and having made humankind on the earth. And with a sorrowful heart, God said, I will blot out from the earth, humankind whom I created. I regret I made the humans, but Noah found favor with yod And then Noah's introduced and it says, the earth became corrupt before God. The earth was filled with lawlessness. When God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all humanity had corrupted its ways on earth. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh is coming for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy them with the earth. So the Aretz, do you see that over and over again? Um, that's what David Seidenberg is referring to. I'm going to share his document again. The flood is the culmination of that degeneration. The flood begins because, as the Torah tells us seven times, humanity's Hamas and Ra, violence and evil, are corrupting and ruining the land itself. But when the flood ends and has been cleansed by God, right? The flood's meant to wash all that away so that it become pure again. Again, I've never understood it quite so much about the connection, about the earth connection. Um, 
and the flood is over and the waters recede, God declares that the connection between humanity and the land has been torn asunder. Here's the verse. I never noticed this before. And forgive me for continuing to shift the screen, but I really want you to see the, the, uh, the text itself. In chapter eight, the flood is now over. God resolved, never again will I doom the earth because of humankind. And doom is the word curse. So God is revoking the curse of Adam and changing the rules. God, when Adam sins, God says, cursed is the earth. You will only draw with your sweat of your brow from its thorns and thistles. God, think of God as uh, in the Torah as someone who, a person who is evaluating and reconsidering constantly um, to make God's project of a beautiful world possible. God says, okay, that didn't work. I'm not gonna curse the earth because of humans. Why? Since the devisings of the human mind are evil from youth and never again will I destroy every living being because of human behavior as I have done. And God promises that the seasons and the days and the nights will not cease. Okay, so God revokes the curse. And um, let me go back to David Seidenberg. God revokes the curse and says, I will no longer add any, I will no longer curse the ground for the sake of humanity or because of humanity. While the relationship between people and animals is ruined, instead of the way it was in Eden when Adam would call to the animals and they would come straight away, now terror and dread of you will be upon all the animals, God continues. And it is no mere detail that the first covenant is not with humanity, but between God and all flesh, all the animals, and between God and the land. Humans are out of the picture as far as divine providence is concerned. Let me share what he's talking about. Again, I had never thought of it quite these terms. So now God blesses Noah and his sons and says, be fertile and increase, fill the earth. The fear and the dread of you shall be upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky. In other words, they're yours to hunt. They're given to your hand. And you can eat any of them. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, it was all vegetarian. The one constraint is you must not eat flesh with its blood in it. And you may not kill other human beings. However, I am making a covenant with every living thing. I'm never going to cause waters of the flood to destroy the earth. 
and I'm putting a rainbow in the sky. Did any of you get to see this half hour rainbow the night before last, right when the sun was setting and the rain was, did you, it was, it was amazing. Um, but the point here is, when I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature among all flesh, so that the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I will remember my everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures, all flesh that is on earth. The point there, as uh, uh, Rabbi Seidenberg says, oh, Ruth, you got to see it. Yes, it was, <laughs> it was an amazing rainbow. Um, God says, okay, humans, I thought you were connected to the humus, to the earth in a way that I see you are not. I see that, that, that your behavior, at, I can't curse the earth because of your behavior and I'm not gonna do this flood thing again. I need another solution. Okay, what is the solution going to be? And by the way, he says, the Tower of Babel story, which follows Noah immediately, where the humans refuse to disperse and connect to the land, which is what they're commanded to do, they immediately refuse to do it. It says, no, no, we wanna make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower to the sky and still be like God because we'll, you know, that's what they wanna do. They wanna feel it. We wanna be like God. We wanna have complete control. Uh, that's our urge is to have dominance and control. Uh, and somehow God hadn't quite understood that when God made us, what it would mean to put that ability and will into a living creature who is actually immortal and relies on the earth for our sustenance. But there we are, that's the dilemma that the Torah keeps describing. And so the Tower of Babel story is one more stab at resistance by humanity to taking their place as creatures rather than creators. And so God needs a new solution. Abraham is God's next stab. That means us. Choosing a particular people to manifest this holy and sustainable relationship with the land. And so I've come, I, I finally have the language that the land that God gives to us is for the purpose of fulfilling the Torah. That Torah, the purpose of that Torah is creating a people who live in a right relationship with the land. If we don't, and that, and if we do not live in that right relationship with the land, our ability to, to um, what's the word, to um, inhabit that land and control it, to have it be our land, is ended. We are sent into exile. So one of the, it, it, 
it's amazing, but not the least bit surprising that many of us Jews can read our relationship to the land of Israel as something that God gave to us without conditions. Nothing in the Torah says that. Everything in the Torah says our ability to make this our land and live on this land is conditional on our ability to transcend our um, greedy and violent and domineering nature and do it consistently and constantly so that this is God's strategy in the Torah. So again, I want to step back. I imagine the Torah is written by some segment of the Israelites, of the ancient Jews living in this homeland. They see themselves as having a special mission, right? And they then project onto the universe into narrative form what that mission is. We're special because God has chosen us to manifest this society that lives in harmony with the earth and with each other, right? That pursues justice. And justice is not just between people, but between us and the earth. And so they're telling a story about how they're supposed to live and how that gets warped over the millennia to be, this is our promised land and God loves us the most and all that stuff. None of that is what the Torah is saying. Um, the Torah never explains why God chooses Abraham. God just does. <laughs> um, and how do we know that this is, this is the way the Torah is looking at it or the way the authors of the Torah are looking at it? In the way Abraham's call is phrased. So I'm going to go back to the text. So let's go on to Abraham. A lot of begats here so that we can get Pat from 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. And then we get to Abraham's call and God called to Abraham, go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse the one who curses you and all the families of the earth shall, be, shall bless themselves by you or through you. What does that mean? The way I'm understanding it in this reading today is it means that through God, God has given, God hasn't figured out how to get humanity to do this. So God is going to create a model people so that the, all the peoples of the earth can see how it should be done. That's what's going on. Can we do it? Well, even the Torah itself ends with not just the five books of Moses, but the, at the end of the Torah, we are exiled to Babylonia. We are exiled because 
of what we do to the land and to the workers of the land. They are inseparable. That's, um, th that's, that's the arc here. We fail. But I can honestly say that it's the aspiration, the envisioning that makes the Torah great, that makes, the, that makes this all worthwhile. The Torah has, as I say again, a dim view of humanity's ability to pull this off. So do I. Um, though maybe when I was growing up in the 60s, I was, I was um, uh, pumped up with, with messianic possibilities as we all were. And yet, as we get older and study history and also watch the arc of our society, we know that Darn, that was, that, that didn't, that wasn't, that didn't happen. So why, so anyway, I've been thinking about that. So Abraham becomes the model citizen of planet earth and Abraham's offspring. Let me stop the share there and go back to um, Rabbi Seidenberg's exposition. Avraham was the beginning of the story of fixing those relationships. Though God has given up on humanity, Avraham tempts God to try to reestablish a right relationship between just one family and just one land. The divine intent is clear. If this family can make it right with this land, they can become a model for all humanity. Kol mishpachot adama, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. But this process needed to unfold over many centuries. Through the descent down to Egypt and enslavement, the exodus from Egypt, and the revelation at Sinai, in order to bring a new human earth relationship to life. I'm going to read Deborah Berger's comment, and then I will also explain this a little bit. Maybe the people who are fulfilling this call today are those all over the earth who are trying to live in harmony with the earth and all of its inhabitants. Deborah, that's my, that is my modern extrapolation of this ancient story. We, we Jews, the, the, the framers of the Torah wrote and thought in a time where universalism was not even a concept, where the global human family was, it's not how the, the world wasn't organized that way. It was a, it was a constant, constant stream of warring clans, uh, invading empires, uh, limited resources, fighting for those resources. So, you know, when many of us modern readers want to just condemn the Torah for its, its uh, very parochial and uh, exclusive focus on the people of Israel, I'd rather say, let's take this ancient view and expand it, not just to the Jewish people, but to all humanity. Um, but the recipe is here that we can take into a larger context. Um, so, um, 
Oh, thank you, Deborah. Um, so, um, so why do we have to go through over many centuries the descent to Egypt and enslavement, the exodus from Egypt and the revelation at Sinai? Why couldn't Abraham just get started? I wanna talk about that later. And I just realized that whatever I don't get to today, I'll just continue next week because I'm speaking about this whole unit and next week's portion continues this. So uh, that's a relief. Okay, so because I, I want to I bookmark this comment about why didn't Abraham, well, then why didn't you just get started with Abraham? Why the slavery? Why the this? Why the that? Let's talk about that a little later so we can get to this portion here. Because Sinai is the place where we learn about Shemitah, which means sabbatical. The plan to create that, and Shemitah, I should say, Shabbaton means sabbatical. Shemitah is a synonym for Shabbaton. And Shemitah means letting go. That's really important. Because if our malady is our inability to let go, our, our compulsion to hoard and to amass and to control, then Shemitah is really the correct word for what ails us and why it becomes, why it's instituted by Torah as a regular practice. Because um, when the Shemitah year comes, we really have to, we release debts. We release indentured servants and we release the land from cultivation. That's crazy. We're gonna starve. And what about our nest egg? And like, it's so radical. Ellen Davis um, talks about how the manna in the wilderness is, a, is trying to train the children of Israel to not hoard and to trust that God will sustain them sufficiently in preparation for entering the land. She makes a really great case for this, that the manna is there to, it says, to test us. The word is used. Manna is there to test us, to train us. And no matter how much you gather, what you're left with in your jar is exactly the amount you need, whether it, you have a big appetite or a little appetite. And if you try to hoard it till the next day, it turns rotten and gets filled with maggots. And, and, and so the manna, it turns out, is practice in the wilderness for what we're going to need to practice in order to live in harmony with God's intentions for us. Isn't that incredible, Naomi? Which is about letting go of our, our panic for control, for amassing, and for hoarding. Oh, boy. Um, but now you can see why the Torah is a spiritual document, right? Because this pertains, whether we're talking about collective or individual liberation. Our liberation is going to be contingent, paradoxically, on our ability to release our sense of being masters of, our, of anything. 
but instead becoming servants of life unfolding. That's the key to our happiness, to our liberation, to our fulfillment, is taking our place in the chorus of creation. So these are agricultural, we're being instructed agriculturally here because that's the nature of the society that, um, uh, that wrote this text, but we can take the principles underlying it and apply it to every level of our experience. Joan said, I thought we were instructed to store goods to prepare for the Shemitah. No, uh, of course we store our goods, but there's the guarantee by uh, yod heh vav -Hey that there will be enough. So um, surely put up stores from the harvest and they will last you because you are not try you are willing to let go. It's about profound trust and uh, faith in, in, in life unfolding. It's, it's hard. Oh, Deborah, a verse in a song I wrote says, this too shall pass, sorrows nor comforts ever last. All that we have is borrowed. Be prepared to let it go. Remember, this too shall pass. What a beautiful, beautiful verse, Deborah. Have you sung this verse before? You mean, have I sung it? Uh, have I sung it anywhere before? No, have you sung it here at this class? No, no. Let's hear it next week, okay? If you're willing oh, to. Oh, sure. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you. I would love that. Yeah. Remind me too. I tend to forget. <laughs> I don't we all? Yeah. Well, so <laughs> if I don't bring it up, it's not because I don't want you to do it. Okay. Oh, Just remind me. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Sylvia. That's great. Okay. So I was saying um, the man, I was describing the manna. Um, and that becomes the, the training ground for entering the promised land and for the sabbatic, the letting go year. In the Shemitah year, oh, Sinai is the place where we learn about Shemitah, the plan to create that model society. Instead of agriculture that destroys the land and leaves it barren, as happened in Mesopotamia, right? If you remember the map of the Fertile Crescent, um, Ellen Davis has a lot to say about this. The land of Canaan, which does not have a great river or water source and relies on springs from the ground and rain from the sky, is bordered on one side by the Tigris and Euphrates uh, Delta and on the other side by the Nile Delta. And it's in those, it's in those civilizations where great ziggurats are built and pyramids um, because they, they have, they, they have an, uh, an irrigation system that they can manage with the waters of the sea that come down through the rivers. And so many writers think of the land of the people of the land of Canaan, the Israelites, as having a critique against those big hierarchical societies that have developed in these places that also led, we know from historical records to environmental um, degradation. Um, 
that's not going to work. They don't have an unlimited water source. They have to figure out how to live in, sustain, in sustainable fashion with the gift of rains that come from heaven, just like the manna from heaven. Uh, there's a lot of being written about that. I was fascinated by that perspective. So, as uh, instead of agriculture that destroys the land and leaves it barren, and then you move on to other fields, as happened in Mesopotamia, the new society will practice radical rest in order to create equality and justice for people and a kind of agriculture that renews and redeems the land. In this Shemitah year, the letting go year, not only is the relationship between humans and the land rectified, fixed and reset, the relationship between humans and the other animals is also fixed. That is why every time agricultural Shemitah, the year of letting go of, the, of cultivating your lands is mentioned, scripture specifies that the wild animals must also have access to the produce that grows on its own in the fields. Okay, so when we read this portion carefully, and it actually jumps right out at you, farmers have to let their land rest. They have to let it go. They do not cultivate it but it also said the land does not belong to them that year. And so any animals or other people who want to graze or, or roam on their land and pick whatever's growing, get to do it. It's not your land. We'll see this again next week, but that this brings us to the most famous and climactic line in our Torah portion. You cannot, verse 23 in Leviticus chapter 25, you cannot sell the land beyond reclaim. You cannot buy or sell land in perpetuity, says the Holy One, for the land is mine. You are but temporary residents upon it. like Deborah's song says. Oh, remember that song passing through that folk song? I saw Adam leave the garden with an apple in his hand. I said, now you're out, what are you gonna do? And raise some grain, raise some cane. I'm an orphan now and only passing through. I, I just remember that from deep in my memory banks, okay. Okay, anyway. Um, Now the whole song's in my head. So that is why the division between human spaces and wild spaces is broken down by taking down fences. What's going on? And this will conclude with this today and then I'm gonna continue with a related um, um, insights next week. These are all signposts of returning temporarily to a way of being that is closer to Eden. As in Eden, humans and the other animals share food and land equally. Once we successfully observe the Shemitah year, the letting go year, the Torah tells us that the relationship with God 
will be fully restored. It says in chapter 26, next chapter, I will become your God and you will become my people. So I want you to think about that for a minute. The end of Leviticus describes that if we give the land its years of letting go and rest and consciously give up our ownership and control, we will be able to recapture the original consciousness of Eden. We will be able to get back, in other words, in, on the level of consciousness, we will be able to reclaim the consciousness of unity that of, of unbrokenness with the land and the people and the animals that we severed after we were kicked out of the garden. So the, the, the long trajectory is, remember I said, uh, um, the, the pe people are, we are banished from the garden, the earth is cursed. The earth fills with our um, violence. God says this can't work, washes the whole earth clean, starts over saying, I'm not gonna do that again. The earth can't be cursed because of you, but I'm going to try to set up a model society, a model farm where through Abraham and Abraham's descendants, where you will see what I'm talking about humanity. And here's how you're gonna do it. Every seven, one of the ways is every seventh year, you have to forgive debts, give up control, let go of cultivating, and return. Uh, I'll get to your comment question in a second, Barbara, and return to the harmony. The let me put it this way. How do we get back to the garden? Right? What is this consciousness that we seek, that we intimate, that we have flashes of? How do we make this consciousness part of our regular rhythm of life? Because we have to, as Barbara said, go back and take, take, go back to our landholding and keep farming. That's part of being a human, right? But, and the answer is in the rhythm of seven. Seven days, the seventh day is the Shabbat, where we restore on a weekly basis, that consciousness to what we bring to our working life. Every seventh year, we do the same with the earth and we let it rest and restore. That's right, always practicing letting go. That is this, we know this from other spiritual traditions, I mean, what's the origin of suffering is our attachments, right? In Buddhism, this is the Jewish understanding of the same simple and impossible to, to almost impossible to attain human truth. This is the Jewish way of describing enlightenment, which then will by nature allow us to live in harmony in the world as creatures, as equals with creation.
not as supposed creators and uh, masters. So Joan said, I think we're making progress with our relationship with the land. The film series has been highlighting returning to balance. Yes, Joan, we're all, there's such a push, such a desire to, to, to reclaim this consciousness. Barbara says, every seven years, are you really giving up your land? Do you reclaim it in the eighth year or do you truly give it away? The answer, Barbara, is that it's not our land. The word that the Torah uses is an achuza, a land holding that has been a lease that has been given to us by God. So it is our land, but it's not our land. It's our land to enjoy the fruits of. And we enjoy the fruits of it in the sabbatical year as well. We just have to share it with everyone, including the wild animals. So it's still our, it's, it's our lease. We do not own the land, the Torah says, only the produce that it produces during those six years. And in the seventh year, we do not even own the produce. But it's our privilege and right to then go back to owning the produce of the land after the sabbatical year. However, it's all contingent. If we don't do this, the land will spit us out. Uh, Joan says, in truth, it seems to be a ritual like so many others to practice mindfulness and then go on to proper behavior. Yes, this is ritualizing our life so that we don't get lost in the obvious and natural human tendency to continually amass, accumulate, and live in fear of scarcity. That's the point. If we don't have practices that force us to remember this, the Torah is pretty clear. We're going to fill the earth with violence and it's going to spit us out. Like this is what, so um, yeah. Um, and Vicky says, this land is your land. This land is my land. Thank you, Vicky. Um, so I'm going to continue this um, thread next week because I knew once I got started that I couldn't get it all to an hour. And, and uh, so we're going to stop sharing now. And we'll do part two um, next week because uh, I have a lot more that it's really between David Seidenberg and uh, Ellen Davis. I'm understanding, I feel like the big picture of the Torah more and more and more. Oh, you're so welcome, Vicki. So I'll stop recording now and continue next week.